Oh, Father, thank you that you are good and that you are sovereign and that you are in control and thank you for uh, what you are doing in our lives to lead us and keep us close to you. Um, thank you that we can really trust you with all these details and with all the sorrows and the, and the trials and, and the pain and thank you Lord that you never disappoint, that your grace is always sufficient and that your peace really does pass all understanding. And I thank you, Father, for this a new study. I thank you for this place. I thank you for every person who's here. I thank you that you bring us out on cold, wintry nights and um, you bring us out because you, we know that you will feed us from your word. And I just thank you so much for it, Lord, for the strength that you provide in it and through it and for the way that we can witness to your glory as we live out the truth that we read. So I pray now as we go into this study of Second Peter, you know each of our lives, Lord, you know every single thing about us, you know what we're struggling with and what we're not, and you know what we might have to face next week. And I ask you, Lord God, to keep reminding us, keep reminding us of your great love for us and for your overwhelming and amazing grace that is always more than sufficient. And I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I don't know if you did, but you should have found time over the holiday period to do the homework online, which said to read through First and Second Peter over the Christmas break. And uh, in order to come to an understanding really of the difference between the two letters, which were written more or less at the same time, um, about 63, 64 AD, uh, both letters written to the same group of people, and talking about two different sides of a coin um, that you could call the enemy. Um, and um, so I'm asking you, if you didn't do the, you know, I don't know if you did the homework or not. And if you didn't, it's okay. In this, this morning, hardly anyone had had a look at it. So we had to read through First Peter. I'm looking at Peter and he's looking down. Um, so I read some passages from First Peter. But if you did do it, um, what was the emphasis of Peter's first letter? What was the main emphasis of his first letter? And if you didn't do it, well, I'll just give you a clue. We'll read a couple of verses from through First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. Uh, if someone could read um, verse 3 to verse 9, please. Thank you. 
Thank you. Someone else read First Peter chapter four, verse twelve to nineteen. This is just to get an idea of what the letter, first letter is about. First Peter four, twelve to nineteen. As though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the, for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins first with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Thank you. And then someone else, First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, please. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Thank you. So just from those verses, what would you say the first letter to the, that Peter wrote is about? <coughs> to encourage believers who are likely to face trials. Yeah. Yeah, it's to encourage believers who are suffering uh, through the trials brought on by persecution. Obviously, the uh, Satan is also in here, prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. But the message, the letter, is basically about persecution of believers that was already going on um, in 63 or 64 AD. So this is 30 years after the church. Um, it's quite amazing that the persecution was already starting against them. And um, the way Peter dealt with it was to remind them that suffering was not unusual and that God would use the suffering, the persecution that they were undergoing, to refine them. And that indeed Christ had suffered. He says in chapter 2, um, verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. And so he's reminding them that uh, if the one that they follow and love was suffered, then they will surely suffer as well. And, um, and that knowledge it has a comforting effect. It's quite surprising that you would write to a people and say, you're going to suffer persecution. You are suffering persecution. But I'm writing this to comfort you because the, sometimes, typically, the comfort we want is, okay, the persecution's going to stop. I'm going to put a stop to it all and it's not going to happen. 
Um, but actually the reverse is true. He's telling them that they will be persecuted, but there will be glory at the end of it. And um, he spoke of the inheritance they have in Christ. He said it's in heaven, reserved for you, pure, undefiled. Uh, um, and that the difficult times and the severe trials, as I say, um, would end in glory. Um, the trials were coming at them from where? The trials that they were going through were coming at them from where? And why do you think? Yeah, they're living in the Roman Empire, so they're coming from and through the Roman Empire. Why would they be suffering persecution? Yeah, but what about their faith would cause them? Um, no, but what was particular about it? Because, you know, we're going to look at Second Peter. First Peter writes about an enemy that is outside, that is coming from the outside and is persecuting and causing suffering for, for Christians from the outside. And they were being persecuted not because they worshipped a God who wasn't known, because in the Roman Empire you could worship all sorts of gods. It didn't matter. What mattered in the Roman Empire was that you didn't worship one God and, and call him the one true God. No, so the reason that I'm so interested in Second Peter and First Peter is that that's where we live today. You can worship anything and everything, but you cannot worship a God that you say is the one true God, the living God, which is exactly what they were doing. And it seems amazing to me that in AD 63, 64, 65, there could be a situation, a culture, that is almost identical with our own. And, and so if you need another proof that we might be at the end, there it is, that the culture of our day is almost identical to the culture that the church began in. Um, and that's probably never been the case before. There's been persecution, there's been suffering, there's been uh, stuff coming from the outside towards Christians, but not ever before has there been a culture exactly identical. The Romans were very self-oriented. You could, you could worship all these different gods, you could um, do whatever you liked as long as it made you happy. They were corrupt, they were perverted, all sorts of things were going on in their time, just exactly as they're going on now. I don't know if they had gender, transgender issues, but they had homosexuality. They had all of that going on. Um, I think they had, um, I think there is, there is some sort of proof that they used to have men used to press up the Yeah, probably, there was probably that, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so it's identical to today. You can go to places, well, you can go to Japan. Japan are thriving almost Western democracy, and it is totally normal for people there to worship Shinto, to be Shintoist and mm. Buddhist at the same time, but very unusual for them to be Christian. Because this idea of worshipping one living true God is alien to the world's culture, and nobody wants it. And so um, Christians are tolerated, they were tolerated then in the Roman culture insofar as they agreed with their culture. If you would renounce Christ or hold him up as one of many gods, you were okay. But already the persecution was starting against uh, those who said he was the only true God. So Peter's writing his first letter about this enemy that's coming from the outside. 
but actually he's not afraid of that enemy. So the biggest part of his letter is the fact of God using that enemy for their good. Do you see what I mean? He's, that God will turn those trials, use them to refine them and bring forth this gold. Because what did Peter know? What had Jesus said to him, said to him and all the other apostles during his lifetime? When there was persecution coming at them, what did Jesus say? Hmm? He rejoice. He did, but it, what he said was, don't worry about what you'll say when you stand before kings, because the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, you will have trials and troubles, but take courage, I have overcome the world. And so he prepared them for the persecution that would come at them. And actually, when you look in our world, all the places that Christians are being most highly persecuted are the places that the church is growing yeah. the strongest. Mm. Because persecution from outside always has the effect of strengthening the church. It's like, a, it's completely yeah. idiotic. How can that be? And yet it does. But you realise what's precious. Yes, I think so. But also because you are more fully aware of your need for God and the fact that he is sovereign and that he is in control and that he's promised certain things to you. Yes, it makes you more resilient. It, it makes you decide and constantly as I say I mean throughout you see the church grew under this persecution in an amazing way it flourished and spread all over the known Roman Empire um, so okay that's the first letter there was the second letter about I mean Jesus said didn't he when he was with the disciples he said I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it because he knew that from the outside nothing could hurt the church. But his second letter is about an enemy that he considers far more dangerous. And this is the subject. Yes. It's, yeah, it's about an enemy within. Not within us as individuals, but within the body of Christ as a whole. And um, what he wants to say is that there is this enemy coming into the church. It's already in, even in his day. Imagine that. 30 odd years after the church is born, they're already facing this enemy. And, and for Peter, this was the most dangerous enemy of all. Um, and if you've read, false, if you've read um, Second Peter, you know what it is. False teaching, false prophets. And so um, Peter knew that the strength of um, the church depended on the truth. It depended on the truth. It depended on three things. It depended on sound doctrine, a godly lifestyle leading to a Christian perspective. A Christian perspective that would enable you to view everything from God's perspective, from the perspective of Christ. Now that's the most difficult actually, because when you put those three things together, individually, in and of themselves, you might think that's not too difficult. You might think, well, you know sound doctrine. You read your Bible, right? So you know doctrine. Yeah? No. Nod your heads. Yes, you yeah. do. You know sound doctrine. So you know what the truth is. So now you've got to, uh, what Peter will say is, knowing sound doctrine is good, but that's what, not what I mean when I say no. When I say no, I mean experience. So knowing sound doctrine and living a godly life go together. So now it becomes slightly more difficult. 
because I can know the truth, but if you ask me to live the truth and mm. put that into my life, that becomes more difficult. Mm. But if I don't do that, the end result is I cannot possibly have a Christian perspective. Mm. If I don't know sound doctrine and live that doctrine out, then I end up with a perspective that is good, but not Christian. Mm. Don't mm. you think that would also make you susceptible oh. to the outside yeah. enemy as well? Mm. Mm. Not just within the church, but mm. outside, well, you know, anything goes. Yeah, mm. exactly. Exactly. So that's why it's such an interesting letter, because that's where we are today. We're in a church. I'm not talking about individual congregations. I'm not talking about individual people. This is not an enemy who is a person. This is an enemy of false teaching and false doctrine. And the, the combined result of the false teaching, the false doctrine, and the um, refusal to live a godly life has resulted in a perspective that allows what we're seeing in our world today and actually cannot see much wrong with it because it seems right. Because it seems right from our natural perspective. Um, and that's what Peter was writing about. That's what he was so concerned about. He was so concerned about a church that did not know, did not have sound doctrine, and did not translate that doctrine into behavior, into a godly lifestyle. And he knew that the result would be that their whole perspective would be weakened, weakened, and they would not be able to stand, as you say, Debbie, against the persecution that came from outside, or even they would start crumbling from within. Mm. Um, so, first of all, I've talked about a Christian perspective. Is there a distinctly Christian perspective? And if there is, how would you describe it? I've got five things written down, so... No, <laughs> no. I want some sort of discussion because you make sure you're awake. So, what would you say? Is there a Christian perspective? Yeah. Yes. yes, there is. Okay. So, give me some examples of a Christian perspective as opposed to a world perspective or a national perspective or a good perspective. Putting others first. Yeah, putting others first. Okay, that's one. Um, Are we about doctrine? No, we're just talking about your perspective how you view things, mm. through what lens you view the world mm. and your life and the, the culture that you live in. So, for example, my first one is, there is a Christian perspective and that perspective finds worth and importance in people rather than things. So, unlike the world's culture, which finds its value in things, houses, cars, jewellery, job, education, all of that, in things, a Christian perspective says every single person I look at is a person that Christ died for. Therefore, that person has worth and value. Um, that's not the world perspective. I mean, definitely. We're living in days when euthanasia is going on, when assisted suicide is going on, when abortion is rampant, when... I mean, we're just living in days when uh, human beings have less and less and less value. Um, so, the first one is, uh, yeah, we find importance and worth in things, in people rather than things. Um, the second thing is that we are to love, not to use or abuse others. 
That's what a Christian perspective leads you to do. Because you find value in other people, you love them. And I, we're not talking about mushy love and the thing, you know, we're talking about a real love, the love of God that comes through you and loves other people <clears throat> because you value them and find that there's worth in them for you. Now, um, again, we're not talking about the person you live next door to or the person who's in your family or your friend from school or it's, we're not talking about that. We're talking about every single person on this planet has value and worth because they are a person that Christ died for. In no other culture is that true. You know, in all the natural disasters, all the, um, all the terrible wars that have gone on through the last two centuries, it is Christians who have found a reason to go and help. No other religion does that. Uh, yeah, sorry, but Jude, Jude, whatever, you know. But it is Christians who find their worth in people. It's a very Israeli thing. I remember an Indian going to Israel and saying, I've never travelled widely, she was a scientist. I've never been respected as much as by the, 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 the people who live in Israel because they all believe that we're made in the image of God. Yes, I'm including them. In, I know they're not Christians, but I'm including that kind of that, yeah, what do you call that, Judaism? Thank you, yeah, 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 that. So uh, what I'm saying is that the Muslims don't have that. They do not have that thinking, and that's why their humanitarian aid is so much less, generally, because their ideas is, that's Allah's will. If Allah wills it, fine. If he doesn't, fine. Asian religions, no. You know, all the religions that believe that you come back as something else. No, you did, you did something to deserve the fate that you're in now, therefore I'm not going to help you out of that. There is no other thinking that, that comes at the problem the same as... It is Christians who got rid of slavery. It is Christians who have done more over the last two centuries than any other religion. I mean, think about it, before Israel was a nation again back in their land, when they were scattered. It is as a, as a, as a religion that was recognised around the world, they have done more than any other. And why is that? The only reason is that there is worth in human beings, because God gave them worth. And because we believe in a living God who died for his creation. Um, so, we are to love, not to use or abuse other people. That's why slavery can't exist. That's why, you know, uh, Christians have fought to end all sorts of discrimination. Because they value people. They value the things that God values. Okay, the Christian perspective, what else? So, it, value, it finds worth in people, it, it, doesn't, it loves and doesn't abuse people. What, what else? Decisions for life. Yeah, life decisions. Yeah. But how are you going to measure things? I suppose that's what I'm thinking. Yes, that's true. You're deciding things through the filter of the Word of God. But how will you measure things? What is important to you? And I'm thought, thinking in terms of, okay, what is most valuable, valuable to you, this life or eternity? This 80, 90 years, 70 years, or eternity? 
Will you measure things through the lens of how it will affect me in this lifetime? Or will you measure things through the, through the lens of where is this taking me for eternity? Like that scripture, set your heart on things above, yeah. not on things Yeah, yeah. It's very hard to do. Yes, yes. But it makes a difference. If you don't have that perspective, then everything becomes about now. It becomes about now. Not necessarily about me, but about now. So if I don't have an eternal perspective, everything is about me trying to make your life happy now. Your life better now. So... Because you're thinking of eternity. And because, because you would rather save someone for eternity than heal them for another 10 years or 20 years. If, if that's your choice. I mean, it isn't our choice. But you know what I mean. You're looking more at what's eternal. Now, that means that you're looking at things you can't see with your human eyes. Now, that takes practice because you just can't do it. And if you don't practice, what will happen? You know the answer. Come on, I'm just trying to get you to talk. Yeah, you atrophy. But actually what you do is you, you revert. You, d you take the default position. And your default position is your natural position. That's what you do. You revert always unless you practice this eternal perspective. Unless you practice seeing things that aren't there in front of you, you will revert back to doing that. So now think about all these, think about, oh, let's do the other two. The Christian outlook finds holiness comfortable and sin uncomfortable. That's what a Christian perspective will give you. It, it makes you not feel comfortable when you're sinning or around sin or in a situation that is sinful. You will feel really uncomfortable. But holiness will make you feel comfortable. Mm. Now, I, yeah, I'm writing these things. They're all for a reason, because I'm going to turn them all back on themselves in a minute and say, okay, where do you see our church? In the Western world, where do you see the church? The last thing is, a Christian perspective shows you that you can find your fulfillment, your meaning, your purpose in no one else but God. That you can't find true fulfillment in life anywhere but God. And that's what a Christian perspective gives you. So now think about, just, just turn those back. What was the first one? Um, we find our value in people and not in things. Look at the Western church. I mean, just not, 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 not denominationally or anything. Just look at the Western church. How much money do we want to spend on our buildings? You know, how much money do we spend on our programs? How much money do we spend? I mean, in worst case scenario, are we sending money to get money, you know, for God to bless us with millions? We're sending money to pastors who are asking for it. I mean... You know, you can go from one extreme to the other, but, but how much time and effort and energy is being spent on things that will perish rather than people that will live or die eternally? Where, you know, 
as I say, I'm not talking about individual congregations, but the church generally, the body of Christ generally, where is it? We are to love, not to use or abuse other people. How much abuse are we allowing and tolerating because we are not shouting about euthanasia? We are not standing up for a, to prevent assisted suicide. We are not making a stand against abortion. We are not doing certain things. How much abuse are we allowing? Are we actually actively encouraging because we're not doing that? Because we're not opposing it. Yeah. <laughs> what is it? Who says it? I think loads of people have said it. Hundreds of men have said it. All it takes for evil to flourish is for a good man to remain silent. This is where we are. And just these things we've said, I mean, I've said, these are things that, that are a Christian perspective. Now, I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about inside the church. We are allowing these situations to go on because we are not standing up. I know, I know. I mean, you have mentioned something that actually was given thanks for in a church I went to on Sunday. And I just, I mean, you just feel like, not screaming, but something inside. Yeah, I know. I want to say, you know, I get something, uh, one of the things you've mentioned, it was given thanks for. Mm. And I just thought, I can't believe it. I know, I know. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're just laying the foundation for this, aren't we, really? <laughs> because No, no, don't be sorry, because I'm glad you've said it, because you're, you're talking about a real-life example now of what I'm saying. But, the, the, you know, remember, Peter's writing about false teaching that has already got inside the church, and he knows it is weakening, if not destroying, the body of Christ. And so what he's going to say is... Um, that, that knowing God experientially, knowing him, that means knowing the truth about him and responding to that truth in your life, is the only way that you will be able to, A, know, how to, know what the false teaching is, know what's right and what's wrong, and it's the only way you'll be able to stand and, and uphold your Christian perspective in the times that are coming. Because the times that are coming are just, they're going so fast. It's hard to even know what to say, let alone to stand. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's where the Christian Institute Exactly. They do. Yes, they do. They do. Yes, they do. So, um, measuring materi material values against eternal values. Where's our church? As I've just said, the buildings and the, and the. We enjoy holiness and find sin uncomfortable. Well, tell me where that is in the church. Where is it in our churches that, that congregations are taught that sin should make you uncomfortable? That you should not be at ease in your sin? And that actually holiness should be your natural habitat. It should be the place you, you want to be. 
that you, you should, it should make you feel really great, you know, like snuggling into your best pajamas and switching on the TV and a nice hot cup of cocoa, whatever it is, you know, a glass of red wine, whatever it is. But that's the place where you feel warm and you feel right, I'm, I'm in the right place. And that's holiness, that's holiness, that's where God is. Yes. Someone was describing that today as a slave to righteousness. Basically, what you've just described mm. is what comes from being a slave to righteousness. Yes. Or yes. And the other is a slave to, to sin. Yeah. Um, and finding fulfilment in God and nothing else. That that you cannot find your your fulfilment in any other focus but God. I mean, that's just. If you say that to some people in churches, some Christians, they look at you like you're nuts. You're radical, exactly. You're radical. But you see, Peter, Paul, Luke, all of the New Testament writers, they wrote about normal Christianity. They didn't write about super Christianity. It wasn't you had to be super spiritual. This was normal life to them. It was the way you knew you actually believed. Now, I mean... You know, you're all, we're all coming every week. We're, we're studying the word. We want to know God. We want to know sound doctrine. And if you're doing that, I don't know how you could not want to be living a godly life. I mean, I don't, honestly. And if you don't really want to live a godly life, well, then, you know, what are you doing with all this truth? Well, it's, yeah, but how can you not want to live a godly life? Okay, you may not be managing it all the time, but, but how can you not want to live a godly life? And how can you hear this about God and eternal perspectives and, and all of that and not want to say, oh, God, get me to that place because I'm not there yet. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're not saying that, then you're probably not a Christian. You know, sorry to say, but you're probably not Christian. And if we're looking at a church, at the body of Christ, again, at the general state of the, the so-called body of Christ, and if we are seeing huge areas of that body of Christ comfortable in their sin, comfortable in allowing and actively encouraging and teaching sin, then what are we going to make of that? There's just two things. Either they're not believers or they are severely deceived. And it's that that Peter writes into. He's not going to bother to write about, are they really a Christian? I'm not sure. He's saying false teaching is inside the church and he's talking about the church as the body of Christ. And he's saying it's already there. You need to know how to spot it. You need to know how to fight it so that you can actively uphold the reputation of Jesus. And he could be writing in 2019. He could have written this letter over Christmas. And, and we would recognize it. Um, okay, so if you were Peter... Well, you are, actually. Imagine you're here. Yeah, you are, Peter. No. If, you're, if you're Peter and you know about false teaching and you know about what's going on in the church, what would you want to do? If you're writing from Jerusalem or wherever he was, what would you want to do? Warn them. You'd want to warn them. That would be your first thing. I want to warn you there is a great danger here. There is an enemy at work inside the church, and I want to warn you about it. And then uh, what would you want to do? How would you want to warn them? Highlight the truth. Highlight the truth. Highlight the truth. And that's exactly what Peter's letter is. It's basically, this is what's happening. I'm warning you about this, and I'm highlighting the truth. 
because it's only by knowing the truth that you will recognise the lie. And, um, and he knows, he knows that um, that corruption that's happening inside the church starts with the first one of my three things. You know, remember I said you've got a no-sound doctrine? That's got to result in a godly life, which will give you a Christian perspective. He knows that there is a massive desertion from sound doctrine. And that's where we are today. Little bits, yeah. Yeah. No, exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Now, why would there be this going on? Why would there be this uh, retreat or desertion from sound doctrine? Why would it be that we don't want to teach sound doctrine in the church? Why is it uncomfortable? Because it offends, because it highlights sin, and it goes against our flesh, and people won't want to do it. That means what? They won't come. They won't come to church. They won't give money. I can't have a big building. I can't have a lot of followers. I can't have this. I can't have that. That's what will happen. That's why we hold back from teaching truth, because we're afraid that it will turn people away. And sometimes the motive is really good because we're thinking it will turn them away from mm. Jesus. So let me just keep them in, yeah. get to yeah, know yeah, them, yeah. and then I'll tell them the truth. But what's the truth about deception? What's the truth about deception? What happens with deception? It doesn't work and we become deceived ourselves. And you start to believe and then justify what you're doing. Yeah, Because deception is slippery and slimy, and it has come from the enemy, and he is out. What is it, John 10, 10, Jesus says, the enemy comes, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And that's what it's doing, and that's what it's trying to do inside the church. And um, actually being fairly successful. Hmm? Yeah, it is, it is. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I went to a sermon in the evening, or a service in the evening, and you would have loved it. It was so strong, so biblical, very challenging right. on sin and righteousness, and just a joy. Mm. So there is some good in sermon. Oh! Hey, there is good in. There is. Yeah, and, and what I want to say is, I'm not, we're not going to in this course at all. We're not going to try and decide who's, it, who's in and who's no, not. No, no, no. That's not what this is about. No, I know you're not. But, so what I'm saying is, if this is the body of Christ we're talking about, and if the body of Christ can be deceived to that extent that they're actually not bothered about sin, then you know we're in serious trouble. Mm. We are in serious trouble. And so our role then, as Bible-believing, hopefully godly living, wanting to at least be godly Christians, what's our role in this? When we study this, Second Peter, what is it for? To tell other people and, yeah, and to live it. To actually show that there's joy and fulfillment and meaning and purpose in living a life that actually is godly and acknowledges the truth of God. Yeah, it strengthens everything. And it doesn't just strengthen you, John, it strengthens all the people around you. And so, so we're not going to fight deception with a hammer. 
<laughs> you know, we're not coming at it and trying to figure out the people who are doing it. You know, who, are, who is it that's doing this? Oh, I think it's Mike. Bang, he's gone. <laughs> you know, um, we're not going to do that. We're going to actually fight this with the weapons that God has given us. And Peter tells us what those things are, and he tells us how to do it. And that's why it's such a, it's such a great letter. Well, there's many reasons it's a great letter. Um, so how does Peter then, we said that we'd want to warn people, and we'd want to speak truth to them. How does he go about doing that? How does he emphasise, what does he emphasise in his warnings? He, he emphasises three things in the letter. If you didn't read the letter, you'd struggle to know what they are, but... Um, uh, yeah. What does he say in the first chapter? He uses a word in the first chapter over and over and over again. Second Peter chapter one. He uses a word. No. Knowledge. He uses the word knowledge or no. In fact, he uses it 13 or 14 times in this letter. You know it's a really important word. And it means experience. It means the experience of knowing someone. So your knowledge of God means you've actually experienced, you are in a relationship with that person. It's not just knowing the truth as some statement of fact. It's actually responding and having relationship with that truth. That's what believing actually is. The definition of uh, believing is having a firm conviction of the truth, surrendering to that truth, and a lifestyle that is evidenced by your surrender. Do you see what I mean? So it's knowing the truth, having a, confirm, a firm <coughs> conviction of the truth, surrendering yourself to that truth, i.e. responding to that truth, so much so that your lifestyle evidences your belief. That's, what really, that's really what believing means. Mm -hmm. And that's the most telling thing. Yeah. 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 So, knowing God then, that's how Peter begins. He begins by knowing God, and we'll look at that in a little while, but he talks about who God is and what he has done. And, and for the first 15 verses of chapter 1, he talks about knowing God and what he means by knowing God. And then from verse 16 on to chapter 3, actually nearly to the end, he talks about something else. The main bulk of his letter is about what? False teaching, true and false prophets. He talks about true and false prophets. And he talks about them because he wants us to know the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet. And then the last part of his letter, just the last sort of three, four verses, chapter 3, verse about 7 to verse 10, what does he talk about? The day of the Lord. Yeah, the day of the Lord. He talks about the end of the world as we know it. Now think about that, he's got three main points here that we've picked out. Knowing God is the first thing, true and false prophets and knowing the difference between them, and then the end of the world, the end of the physical world as we know it. So again, why does he do it like that? I mean, it blows my mind that Peter was a, was a fisherman, that he would write a letter like this. I mean, how people can contest that God writes this, that it's God-inspired, I have no idea. Because how does a fisherman outline a letter and a thesis like this? How does he do it? He says, okay, I want to warn you. 
And the only antidote to false teaching is knowing God. So that's the first thing I'm going to tell you about. I'm going to tell you what it means to know God, who he is and, and how you respond. That is knowing God, knowing him. in And then he said that knowing God is going to lead you to be able to tell the difference between true and false teaching. Why is it important? Because the end of the world is coming and you need to know the difference. So turn that back on itself. Again, like we did with the, the Christian perspective. The end of the world is coming. It's really important you know the difference between true and false teaching. And the only way you will is if you get to know God. Do you see what I mean? How can he do that? How can Peter do that? I mean, I couldn't make it up, could you? Really? Could you? He's No. But he had the Holy Spirit and he had God inspiring him. He had so God that's, speaking that's through that's him. They couldn't do it on their own. They couldn't do it. And, and, and you can see that. And they, they, couldn't, um, they couldn't take any credit for no. it. And they didn't take any no. credit for it. No. I mean, Paul was a really educated man, but Peter. Well, yeah. There you go. I know. So, I mean, just think. Just, just think about this letter. Okay, okay. I'm really struggling. I, I don't know the difference between what's right and what's wrong. It's really hard because I know some really lovely Christians and they think it's okay to, to be, you know, assisted suicide if you've been like this, you know, for years and that's really good and, and oh, I feel so sorry for those people and, you know, so we've got to love them, haven't we? We've got to love them and agree with them and who am I to say it's wrong? You know, who, I know, but this is the false teaching. So, so how am I going to know that's right and wrong? Lord, I want to know what's right. I don't know what's right. How am I going to find out? Okay, well, what's God's answer? Know me. Know me. Get to know me. Don't bother about learning about the, t the teaching. Don't worry about learning who's the, te who's the right teacher and who's the wrong teacher. Don't try to work it all out on your own. Just get to know me and you'll know the difference. And, and then, Lord, you know, I've been worried all my life about Armageddon. I've been worried all my life about someone hitting the button and the whole world dissolving, which I used to be, you know, in the Cold War days or before when I thought the world was going to blow itself up, you know, or someone was pressing a button somewhere and I'd go, you know. So, Lord, I'm really worried about the end of the world. I mean, it's described so graphically in this Bible. How am I going to know how to live? How am I going to know what to do? How am I going to know who to follow? What's the answer? No God. No God. No God. And that's the, th I mean, you couldn't make it up. It starts in Genesis and runs to Revelation. What's the answer? No God. No me. What does God say he's going to do when you come to him? Sorry, I know I'm off on one. But really, what's he going to, when you come to him, when you're born again, what is his promise to you? I'm going to make you like Jesus. You're going to know me. You're going to know me, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's what eternal life is. Eternal life is that you will know me. Know him, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. What is God's answer for every single problem on the planet? Know me. Know me. It's amazing to me. Just amazing. It is amazing to me that God would, it would be so simple. Jesus' prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Well, they've been living, haven't they, a, the life of worship, uh, which was false, the blood of bulls and goats, which cannot save from sin, mm. and thinking that that is all there is to it. 
And Jesus comes along and shows them what the prophets were talking about uh, years before, uh, 500 years before. Yeah. And leads them into this truth which is in him. Mm. Mm. He's the fulfillment of He's the fulfillment of the prophecy, yeah. Yeah. But now he's writing to people who know that. He's writing to people who have come in, who have actually ostensibly been born again. So he's writing to people inside the church. That is why this is such an important letter, because it's not about the world. It's about inside the church. It's about you and me knowing the difference between truth and deception. This um, false teaching is in the church, isn't it? Mm. Because of oh, yeah. the, uh, the Judaism, which is still prevalent within the people within the church. So the persecution, yes, does come from without, but also within, within, the, within the people in the church, because they want to revert back to Judaism. Because we, we read, don't we, where they were, in, they tried to encourage them to. To go take some of the rituals of yeah. Judaism to, yeah. to pacify the, uh, yeah, the Judaizers the who were saying you are saved by grace, saved by faith, but you have to keep the works of the law yes. in order to be saved. And they were Judaizers. And I'm sure Peter knows he's writing about that. And he's writing about antinomianism, antinomians who say it doesn't matter, you're saved, you can live any way you like. And Peter's writing against that. I think we suffer mostly from the latter. Yeah from antinomianism, yeah. this idea that I can, I'm saved, it's okay, I can, I, God wants me to be happy, therefore I can live any way I want to live. Yeah. That's where we are. I mean, yes, there is, there is some Judaizers inside the church, but it's far more the other thing, Mike, I think, in our culture. Um, so, what does Peter do then? I mean, I, I've just said you can turn those three emphases either way. How would he begin then? How does he begin? I mean, we'll, well, we'll know because we'll read it. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 1, 1 to 15, in his introduction, really, or long introduction. Somebody read those verses, maybe cut it in half, two people read. Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. 
Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, and as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Thank you. Okay, I mean, I think in here there's several verses for us, really, because I'm always aware that what we're talking about is stuff you already know. We already know. And um, sometimes it's, it's easy to think, well, why are we going over this again, Lord? You know, I've said this a million times. But actually, Peter is reminding them of things they already know. And he says, I'm going to be diligent to, so that you are able to call it to mind. You won't need the letter in front of you. You will remember the words because they will have been so uh, kind of uh, imprinted on your soul. And um, so um, you can break that, those 15 verses into two parts. Um, so what, what would you break them into? Thinking of the old What Spot Did books. Do you remember What Spot Did? No. Are you? Whoever he's called, whoever he is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do that all the time. I've got five of them, so they get they get they're interchangeable. Um, so yeah, so what? How could you break these verses up? I think initially it's so gone because it were taking us by the hand and leading us into a place of virtue, which mm. is only found in Christ. Mm. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. So how do we split the verses, Mike? I mean, it's fifteen verses, and Peter's very kind of deliberate yeah um, he well I'm going to say what I think it's like yeah one to four is this is what God has done so what God does you know what spot did what God does and what's uh, verse 5 to 15 what we do this is what God did does this is what we do this is how we respond to what God did God did this, therefore we are able to do this. Whichever way you want to say it, the two things are connected. And, they, and he starts, as all of the New Testament writers start, with what God did. Yes. What did God do? And then what do we do? And we will look at that more um, next week. What did God do, actually, when we were born again? Peter, in his first letter, will say that we were born again by the living and enduring word of God. And this is the word of God that we, uh, that he's now producing again to say, this is what God has done to enable you to do what he wants you to do and what will ultimately be fulfilling to you and give your life purpose. So um, he uses, as I said, the word know or knowledge, I think 13, 14 times in the, this letter. It's only three chapters long, so that's quite a lot of times to use one word. And it means a living experience. Uh, and participation in the truth. 
So it doesn't mean just knowing the truth, it means participating in the truth. And he already sets that up, actually, in those first four verses. Because he says that, um, uh, that grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. That the way grace and peace is multiplied to us is in the knowledge of God, in the participation of knowing God, in your sharing of God that happens because God has done what he's done. Um, and so um, how would you describe it? Not in these words. How would you describe a, a knowing God to someone? I mean, take me with my sister who's on a hospital bed and I'm trying to explain to her, you know, and not all the time, I am talking about other things, but, you know, what does it mean to know God? What can knowing God mean for her? And, and, and to try and get past the, what the word no means. So how am I to explain to her? How am I to live in front of her? what that word means. I know God and he knows me. And how does that look? Yes, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm only using that as a small, so it's not really about my sister. It's how, what does that look like in real life? It's good manners. It's good manners. It's God's manners. Good manners in Christ, isn't it? In all times, in all ways. Yeah. That's a little bit too proper for me, Mike. <laughs> I don't know. Good manners, I don't know. Yes, of course it's that. It's that. So forget my sister now, because I'm sorry, it's a bad example, so I shouldn't have brought her in. But so let's, let's say, how does my knowing God look in real life? Every day, what does it look like? Mm. Yeah, I live a life of conviction. Yeah, it looks peaceful. Yeah, who's God to me? I mean, who's the boss in that relationship? He's the boss, right? So what does my knowing him look like? On its basic first level, it looks like me serving him. It looks like me obeying him. It looks like me doing what he says and not what I say. It looks like me wanting his will, not my will. It looks like me going his way, not my way. It looks like when we come to a crossroads and he says, turn right, I don't go left. It looks like that, right? And so it, on the most basic level, it looks like he's God and I'm not. And I know it. So every decision, every thought every value, every part of my perspective, thinking, everything is based on him being God and me not. That's what knowing God is. Now, yeah, even before that though, John, in order to reflect God, I have to obey him first. You see, when Jesus, and when the New Testament writers talk about loving God, they mean obeying. That's what they mean. They mean obeying. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. It's a quiet confidence, isn't it? It is, but the thing is, you don't have that confidence, Mike, until you've lived with this God. Because you don't really know that you can trust him until you actually do trust him. You don't know that God is gracious until you need his grace. In fact, until you fail. You don't know that God is gracious until you fail. And then you know that he's gracious. You don't know that he's compassionate 
until you're in massive pain and sorrow and you actually feel that compassion. But what I'm going to say is that, that God asks you to step out in obedience to him before you feel that, before you know it, based on what you trust he has done before he's done it. Now that takes true faith. And Peter will write about, what is, he, what is his introduction? Who is he writing to? What's the first line, basically, of this letter? To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. He means it is possible to have a faith that is not the same as ours. It's possible to have a faith that is not a saving faith, that is not a Christian faith, that will not enable you to obey, to share, to partake in the divine nature. Well, that's it, but that's what he's going to describe now. He's going to describe that faith. He's going to say that that faith multiplies grace and peace to you. It gives you righteousness. It gives you everything you need to, to live a life of godliness. And the way you know you have that faith is how? By being godly. You don't know you've got that faith unless you live that faith. So he's saying, do you want to know you've got the same kind of faith as me? Then, what does it he say? Apply all diligence. Of course, but why would you do it, Mike, if you didn't believe he would? Do you see what I mean? It's you have to believe that he wants you to be that that way. Yeah, but most of us might, yeah. But you get that now from an experience after you've known God. Yes. You didn't get that before you knew God. And that's what I'm saying. You got it. He did something to bring you to new life in Christ. He gave you his spirit. But when you... No. Well, I didn't come to the end of myself first. Yeah. Everybody's different. So, but what I'm saying is at some point you had to say, I trust that everything you say is true. I don't know it's true. I don't know you're gracious. I don't know if it was an intellectual No. No, maybe it wasn't in the beginning, but as you walked on with him, it had to be intellectual because you think with your mind. You don't think with your heart. You think with your mind. You make choices with your mind. It becomes joy upon joy, unspeakable, as time goes on. Okay, that's your experience. Yeah, it's true. It does. It's true. You, you receive joy. You rejoice in all of those things. But I, trusting, trusting is actually doing is actually putting into practice the words that you say you believe. Exactly. It's like me saying, I know that God will catch me if I jump. Or a child, let's say a child would take that picture. You know, you're standing in the water and your child's on the edge of the pool. And you say, jump. And they jump. And then you step back a bit further and a bit further and then they get a little bit scared and, they, and they're not sure they're going to jump. They have to trust you to jump. <laughs> exactly, but you can't. They won't know that you'll catch them until you until they've trusted you. And that's what Peter's talking about. He's talking about the assurance of who God is because 
you have done what he's asked you to do. Mm. There is an assurance from obedience that you can't get any other way. To me, that sort of says, this is the proviso. You do that, and no. I will do this. No, no, no. What, this, what it's saying, Mike, is, I'll do that because I know you've done this. Mm. I know that God is gracious, mm. therefore I will trust mm. him to be graceful when I, gracious when I fail. I know that he's forgiven me, therefore I trust when I sin, he will forgive. I know that he will enable me to be godly, therefore I will do my best to be godly. I know that he has called me holy, made me holy, therefore I will live every day holy. Well, it is. In its essence, it is. It's the doing it that's not simple. It's the doing it. Why does Peter say <laughs> applying all diligence? Why does he say that? Why doesn't he just say, go out and live the life? Because it's hard. It's really hard. Because it's in every day, in every way, we're faced with choices and doubts and, and difficulties and trials that come from ourselves, from our own flesh, from our personality, or that come from outside. And every day, in every way, we have to trust that God is who he says he is. Yeah. And, that, and that's <coughs> something that the enemy is constantly coming at us about. Yeah. Is he really this? Will he really do this? Are you really sure? Is there really an end of the world coming? Is there really this? Is there really that? Are you sure he said this? Are you sure he said that? You, you, Mike, is he going to hold you? You? And is he going to hold you with all your sin and all your, all your messing up and all your failings and all your years of this and that and the other thing? Are you sure, really sure he's going to take you in to heaven? Because I know what I know what I know. But, so what I'm saying is they're the things that come at you. Yes. And it's only by actually saying, yes, I'm sure, therefore I'm moving on with God, that you actually receive the assurance that it's real. And, and so it's not that you do this to get, to, to get the truth. You've got the truth, you do it because you have the truth, and then you receive the assurance for it. Do you know what I mean? Does everybody know what I mean? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's like I said to my niece, we were going in the car to see my sister, and I said, you know, for a long time I used to say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe he did this, and I believe he did that. I said, but I'd stopped saying I believe. Now I say, I know. I know Jesus. I know him. I don't have to believe in that. I know that he is who he says he is. And that's what you do. You step across the line. You said you believed. And he gave you his spirit. And every time you make a step trusting, you start to know him better. You know him because you're obeying what you believe, what you trust. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying, put your trust in what God has promised you. Know that it's true, and then step out in, and apply all diligence. And it's a crucial thing. It's crucial that we know the difference here. Because if we try to teach that you have to do these things in order to be right with God, Everything's upside down. That's false teaching. That's deception. But if we, if we teach that you don't have to do those things because God's done it all, 
that's also deception. So somehow between the two things that are obvious to us, that we know we've heard a million times, we have to find a way to walk that road that speaks the truth and lives the truth and gives us a real Christian godly perspective on life that makes us able to choose between this and that and, and to show that choice by the way we actually live and what we stand for. Exactly. Exercise it. Yeah. 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 It's like the chair, you know. I, I, I said it a hundred times before. I know it's boring, I'm sorry, but you know, you can tell me that chair will take my weight. You can tell me the legs are strong and you know the maker and it's really solid and it's very comfortable, but until I sit down, I'll never know that's true. I have to sit, yes, and knowing the truth is experiencing that truth. And that's what they're talking about. And when you think about it in this context, the context of this letter is false teaching and true or true and false prophecy. It's knowing God or not knowing God. It's believing the wrong gospel or believing the right gospel. It's living a life that pleases God or not living a life that pleases God. And it matters because the end of the world is coming. So when you think about it in these terms, Yeah, exactly. It isn't a threat. I'm not talking about for me. I want to live a life that honors God and pleases God. I want to obey God because in doing that, I make assurance to other people, not just to me, but to other people, that this God is real, that I know him, that I have a relationship with him that affects my life. Because you see, the problem is Satan knows the truth. He knows the truth. He knows scripture. He knows the word of God. Yet he has no relationship with God. So what's the difference between knowing the truth and having a relationship? It's actually living the truth. That's what Peter's talking about. It's not enough to know that God is God. It's not enough to know that Jesus died on the cross. It's not enough. Yeah. It's not enough to know that. Yeah. It has, there has to be a response to that truth. And it can only be a response of obedience. Mm. And the obedience to the truth that Christ died for you is what? How do you, in, in the big picture, what, what is the obedience that you make to the cross of Jesus? Yeah, you live for him. He died for you, you live for him. Mm. He died for you, you surrender your life to him, whatever way you want to look at it. He died for you, therefore you live for him. You show, you know he died for you because you live for him. You don't live for him so that he'll die for you. He died for you, therefore you live for him because you love him. All of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can, like, unfortunately. We often do other. No, but because, because of that love, that's what constantly draws you. Yes. Mm. Yes. You know, we often I people say, well, they, you get these people to make a decision of Christ or whatever it is. I personally don't think that happens. I think people get drawn by the love they see for the first time. They realize the love of God in Christ for them. And that's, over, that's, that's overpowering. Mm. Overpowering. Mm. I also think, if I may say, that, that, that 
we're reticent maybe to share that with other people. But sometimes when we do, and I'm sure you have the same experience as well, there's a remarkable acceptance of that uh, sharing of that faith mm. in the other person. Yes, that's quite a few times that's happened. But I've had one rebuff probably six months ago that was two rebuffs actually that were really I didn't know how to handle. We we often get instruction on how to handle witnessing for Christ of life, but try the other side of when you get a real rebuttal. Oh well, I get most of the time, Mike. So <laughs> I think that's yeah. But but what I would say to you is that you know, Christianity is an intellectual choice. It's not a leap off a cliff. It's not a feeling. It's and, and I'm not saying you're saying this, but I want to be clear that because we're too many times we are told mm -hmm. that being a Christian involves a leap of faith. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. It does not. It involves a rational looking at the evidence of Christ Jesus and saying, yes, I choose to put my trust in that. I can't explain it all, but I choose to trust it all. Well, then jump off. Then jump off. Then jump off. Well, maybe, maybe, if God calls you to do that. But I do not believe people who say there is no choice involved in this. There is choice in our belief. We have to choose to trust God. It, again, Will I sit on the chair or not? Here it is. Here's Christ. Will I sit on that chair or not? And I must choose to sit on that chair. And I was saying, when you come to the end of yourself, the end of your own rope, the only thing left to you is to fall off. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, maybe. Maybe that's true. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I do really mm. struggling with yeah. the whole thing of understanding what to have faith in it mm. um, for, for years. Um, and actually, I think it's helpful And his pro and but in the day to day, I think that's I, that hasn't been very clear to me at all. No. And, and I'm not going to the church, but you know, it'd be helpful if the church preached on it. But um, because the, the promises are not you, you, you're often told to have faith that things will work out, or have faith that X, Y, and Z yeah. will happen. And actually, those are not the things you can have faith. No. Because no. no. I often question, well, why why would he allow me to have? Um, there you go. Yeah, it's knowing him and knowing what he's promised and knowing why he's promised those things and and what that actually means. I mean, some of those promises look like he may want you to have a lovely house and a big car, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. So it's, it's just knowing him, his character, who he is, and the fact that he, and he, he allows you to know him through his word. Mm. So through the promises. It's even then, for me, complicated on working out, well, based on that promise, you know, can you just give me a promise? Okay, well, the, the one that is, oh, it, is that God will cause all things to work together for good for those who love him and, and who so are called according to his purpose. The situation you're facing, I guess it's helpful to know the promise, what promises you're being made so you can go, well, does that, does that 
does that work with that exactly. promise, or promise am I expecting yeah. out of that? Yeah. If there isn't a promise, then I don't expect But tell me, okay, so take that back right down to its lowest place and say, okay, what does God want you to know fundamentally about him? He wants you to know that he loves you, that he will only do good for you, that anything and everything that happens in your life, he will cause to work for your good. Whether it looks good at the time yeah, or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, but that good doesn't always mean now, because he's asking you to think with an eternal perspective. And he's saying the trials that you're going through now, that maybe you've had to go through for a long time, you may not look at that trial and say it's good. In fact, it would probably be impossible to look at the trial and say that's good. But what you look at is how God will bring glory and gold out of that trial. And you trust that promise that, as Peter said in his first letter, even though you're distressed by various trials, God is bringing forth glory from that trial. That's what you trust. And you find as you trust it, he confirms that to you. It's, it's a, a mystery, but that's the reality. I find that the total reality. I promise that you have just Everything I'll fish up most terribly, especially with my husband, for instance. But I see that, and it is amazing. Yeah. Always honours it. Yeah. Yes, it may take a little time, but he always yes. means good out of it. Yes. Yes. It's a wonderful, yes. wonderful promise. Yes. Yes. I think sometimes that you won't always see the good that's come out of it until much later. Much, much later. But then you'll find something, and it may be that you don't find the good out of certain circumstances and trials that are hideous in our life, and you don't see the good of them until you get to be with him in glory. But one day you will see the goodness, because God is good. He is good all the time. And he is a father. And Jesus says, you know, which of you if, you, if your child asks you for something, would you give him a stone or a snake? How much more will your father give what is good to those who, who are his children? You are a child of God. God will only give you good things. It's just that they sometimes get wrapped up in human bad paper. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But, yeah, definitely knowing the promises, trusting the promises. So I uh, just want to end, really, with this knowing, you know, the living participation in the truth, what that means, because um, that's where the biggest nugget of deception is in the church, I believe, that we know the words in the church, but we don't participate in the reality of them. And I, the only way to describe that is to think about the fact, as I said, that Satan knows the truth, but he doesn't live the truth. Mm. He knows the truth, but it hasn't changed him. It hasn't brought about a godly lifestyle and a Christian perspective. Mm. So um, in John 17, we've got it up on there, I told you, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That was, John's, that was Jesus' prayer. And what he meant was make them like me. Mm. Make them like me. Now, how did Jesus become Jesus? How did, how did he become who he was? How did he, how did he get to the cross? Through obedience. Through obedience. Through obedience. He learned obedience, it says. How, it's impossible. It's a mystery. How could God, the Son of God, have to learn obedience? But he learned obedience, it says, through the things he suffered. Not my will, but this Yeah. So if he's going to say, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, make them like me, God, make them like me through your word, what can you absolutely know for sure is going to happen? 
You are going to learn obedience mm. in order to be like Christ. Mm. And it, I know, Debbie, I know. It's like head in the hands, for goodness sake, really, I know. It's and, and Hebrews, what is it? Hebrews 4, verse 12. Um, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and it cuts through bone and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word of God will hit you where it hurts and it will do that because it wants you, God wants you to obey. Because, yes. And I don't even think it's discipline a lot of the time. I think when God, because we're so, I mean, for me, I'm talking about me, I'm so weak that, you know, if he started disciplining me, I'd be off the planet, you know, I'd just be gone. So I think that God's sword is very gentle for me, but it cuts through. It does cut through. It cuts through all the stuff and all, and it shows me the truth. And then it's like God says to me, so you're going to live in that truth then? Mm. You're going to really live there? Do you know what I mean? So at 4 a.m. this morning when I'm praying and thinking, Lord, what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? What am I going to say? How am I going to say it? It's God coming in and saying, I'm leading you into a broad place where you will worship me. Will you live in that place? Do you see what I mean? So I have to get in, I have to step into that place. I can't just say, yes, I know, you'll do it. Mm. I have to actually walk there with him. Mm. And it's amazing to me, I was reading yesterday, God answered today's prayer yesterday and I didn't realise it. Um, yeah. um, I was reading in Genesis 26 where you read about Isaac and he's, um, he, he's, Afraid, as Abraham was afraid, if he tells the, I think it's Abimelech or Ahimelech, that uh, Rebecca is his wife, he's afraid that, um, mm. uh, no, Abraham was Sarah, but Isaac was Rebecca, and he's afraid, mm. and they'll kill him and all of that, mm. so he says she's his sister, and, you know, there's that whole thing, and then, and then it comes to, he, he's, he's allowed to go, and He's, his herdsmen, they try to find wells and they can't find wells because they're all stopped up and they're all, and he has to keep moving on and moving on and he faces opposition and opposition and opposition. And then it says he came to a place with a well called Rehoboth, which means broad place. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he worshipped him. And yesterday, before we knew exactly what we were facing, uh, God said, that's what's happening. I am bringing you into a broad place where you will worship me. And this morning at 4 a.m., I realized mm. that's what he's doing. Mm. Out of this chaos, he's bringing me into a broad place with a well of living water where I will worship him. And it was, you know, amazing to me. Um, mm. So, Father, I'm going to finish there and thank you for that word that you gave me yesterday that mm. just was so right for this morning's prayer and and thank you Lord that you do go before us and prepare us for what lies ahead thank you that in one way it's so simple we simply obey what you say and thank you that when it gets really complicated and difficult you say that my grace is sufficient for you and that you have already called us holy made us righteous so I thank you Lord for the mystery of salvation. I thank you that we'll never fathom the bottom of it, that it will be um, just the, an unending joy of my life to discover more and more
the depth and the width, what is it, and the breadth and the length of your love. And to know that love of God that surpasses knowledge. And I just thank you, Lord, that we all of us, all of us here, have those promises, those precious and magnificent promises, and that you are going to lead us through this short study of this letter into that broad place where we can worship you. And I thank you, Father, that you will. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.